Welcome to What That Means with Camille, companion episodes to the Cybersecurity Inside podcast. In this series, Camille asks top technical experts to explain, in plain English, commonly used terms in their field, then dives deeper, giving you insights into the hottest topics and arguments they face. Get the definition directly from those who are defining it. Now, here is Camille Moorhart. Hi, and welcome to this episode of What That Means, Offensive Security Research, aka Hacking. We're going to be talking today with Jason Fong, who's Director of Offensive Security Research, as well as Academic Research Engagement at Intel. He oversees the security assurance and emerging threat research of key technologies that power Intel's edge, communication, and data center products. In addition, he leads academic and industry collaborations that advance product security assurance best practices for the semiconductor industry. Recently, he contributed to the creation of the community-driven hardware common weakness enumeration and the industry-first hardware capture-the-flag competitions that inspire researchers to address some of the toughest challenges in hardware security. He is a founding member of CAPEC CWE, the Hardware Common Weakness Enumeration Advisory Board, and he has over two decades of industry experience in SOC architecture, system on a chip, architecture and performance, verification automation, product security penetration testing, consultation, research and pathfinding, engineering, and risk management. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Camille. Thanks for inviting me to speak to your podcast audience. I'm really excited to have you here. And I'm going to start off by asking you to define offensive security research. Um, I, I think, you know, that I almost want to say that's a euphemism a lot of times in the industry for hacking, because I think typically people think of hacking as only bad. So we've got this term offensive security research, but can you define what that is and what hacking is in just a few minutes? Basically, um, we hack our own products before it got hacked by the attackers outside. So this is kind of my definition about offensive security research is about how can we ensure our products are being secured using an alternate way, right? So when you look at offensive, the opposite is defensive. So let me start off by what people usually do when they look at security of the product is to find out, for example, what are the best practices are being available to help support secure product design. That is the defensive part. Also, people are looking for advancement in tooling and methodology so that the um, developers, the verification people actually find these vulnerabilities in an effective manner and timely manner. And also, uh, we have people looking at how can we uh, introduce the best-in-class protections and mitigations? These are all what defensive side of the security research is about. But how about offensive? Why do we need to have offensive? So we want to put ourselves into the shoes of the hackers and ask the question, what would they do? And this is about embracing the hacker mindset uh, and assess the product risk from their angle and acquire insights to secure products that could have uh, been missed. So Camille, do you actually like to watch uh, action movies? I love action movies. So one of those that I really like is uh, about these gangsters trying to rob a bank, which is like protected by high-tech gadgets. Uh, the safes are being hidden in, in the bank, right, with uh, all these layers and layers of concrete walls. 
Uh, yeah. And you can drill through it. And then if you really want to overcome those safe uh, mechanisms, they have these pin locks. Only uh, two members, maybe for the whole bank, actually knows about the password. And you can really hack within the different amount of time. And they have trap doors, uh, retina scanner, right? all those things behind, right? And that's yeah. what the interesting part about those movies. How did these smart hackers or uh, gangsters right, be able to break the bank and get the valuables, the gold bars out of it, right? So that is the part that really intrigued me. And hacking, right, or security hacking is no different than that, right? It really employed a different kind of mindset. The mindset about going uh, against the rules, going out of the box thinking. Uh, so in some of those movies, they may think about, hey, you know what, if I want to just play by the rule, then I have to break the combination lock. But how about let's try to retrieve the fingerprints off the keypad. Now you don't have to get the code from two different people. Uh, how about I blow off the hinges of the safe so I'm not trying to attack the strongest part, I'm looking at the weakest link. Uh, maybe I can drill holes uh, from the bottom of the building right, rather than attacking the thick layers of uh, concrete walls. So you kind of go behind the blind spots of the designers and try to exploit weaknesses. So hackers are very similar like that, right? We don't want to be played by the rules. We are going for the weakest link. And this is where offensive security research is about, right? To see how hackers are trying to compromise a product using their rules, using their leverage. And if we can anticipate that, we can also patch some of our mental kind of blind spots and make the product to be even more uh, secure. So to me, offensive security research does not replace the traditional defensive research, but go hand in hand to make the product even more secure. So why do you go... Or why do companies just in general go outside of themselves to look at or get the perspective of offensive, I'm just going to say hackers. I mean, why isn't that done internally in kind of partnership with the architecture? Why are you going outside of a company to pull in that expertise? Yeah, in fact, actually, uh, we have a lot of offensive security research uh, employees in place at the company, right? And sometimes you also contract out with artists. And as a researcher, we have our experience and our past learnings kind of shape our perspective. And by having more people coming from different perspectives, it helps to kind of round out the blind spots. So why the architecture team is not doing that directly? I think they are already doing the defensive side of it. They are already coming up with the threat model the best they can. They look at all the perspectives that they already know and try to already incorporate into the product. So having an outsider perspective, having a team outside of the development team, looking at the product from a fresh angle, exploiting the use cases, figuring out that things that they may not anticipate by the designer, by the architecture, by the verification, adds a lot more value. And that's where when we combine forces with different security researchers from different backgrounds, and each help to round out these ideas, which makes this whole effort becomes even more effective. So I had always thought that hacker equals bad. So how is it that you're able to work with hacker? Why would hacker work with you? I mean, a bank robber is not going to work with the bank. So tell me how you structure something like that. Right. Yeah, this is also the part that makes uh, my job fun, right? So I'm hacking my own product. I'm being paid by the company to do fun things that I like. And I'm hiring the best professionals outside into my team to do the work. So there are a lot of like smart guys. Why they care about security? Because it is really fun. It actually exercises their curiosity. 
their creativity and the out of the box thinking. They are very intelligent. Uh, some of them may be jack of all trades. Some of them highly specialized in certain skills, and they are also, I would say, a very careful observers. These are the people who are like detective. They try to break things uh, out of very small pieces and try to understand the patterns, understanding the usage model, and find things that other people cannot find. And they also like learners and collaborators, right? So these are all the good guys, and to them, right, they are doing the job to find flaws in product. You can be the bad guy that maybe sell your learnings to the black market, but also you can be doing all these fun things as a good guy. And I think there are certain types of researchers that we really work with very closely, and they all share some common goal. Right, the goal is I want to make technologies better and safer for people to use because their parents, their kids, their grandparents, their friends, everyone use the same technology, and that's some of those ideologies that are shared by these researchers. These hackers. At the same time, of course, right? There are also some bad apples in the mix, right? I would say they may look for their own personal fame and glory and money, and that could also be casting certain、uh, doubts against the entire population of researchers slash hackers. Well, I mean, I guess I want to drill down on that a little bit more because even good hackers can be interested in. Fame and glory. Maybe it comes in、mm-hmm. in the perspective of、uh, publications. So, I mean, can you talk a little bit about what motivations or what what I think you maybe talked about what inspires people to maybe be good hackers in terms of improving technology? But what are the kinds of rewards that they might be looking for,、um, and are they different than the rewards of people? Designing technology as a whole, we'll go with the eighty twenty rule. <laughs> right, right, yeah, that's a great question. So、uh, every day I work with a few types of、uh, researchers.、Uh, some of them comes from the academics. Some of them comes from the industry that are employed by companies. And then also some of them may be the freelancers.、Uh, they're the bounty hunters. So let me start with the academics. These are the smartest people that you can find across the whole world, and they are. Eager to find the next innovations, right? They want to be the first to come up with something new, and looking at security is one way to be、uh, having that fame and glory. But to them, more important is also about showing people about what are these innovations is. So publications, paper, having their students continue to be graduated through the PhD program, having the grants to allow them to continue to drive bigger and. Better kind of、uh, research is what motivate them to do all these、uh, great work. And sharing that information by nature through publication is part of also their goal, right? So sometimes we get into a little bit more about the timing of the sharing. As you can imagine, being the first to be able to publish something、uh, is very important to the academic researchers. And how can companies work with them to ensure that they can still be calling out they are being the first? Without、uh, having the whole world knows about a particular vulnerability before the company get to address the issue, is the dynamics. Okay, so I want to I want to slow down on that point and reiterate it because I think it's interesting.、Mm-hmm. What you're saying is, in order to collaborate with academic researchers, what they're interested in a lot in a lot of times is being first to publish a finding, a new finding, or a new vulnerability, or a new kind of weakness. That no one else had discovered, and this is often a race. So there may be、mm-hmm. multiple different institutions or academic research groups that are essentially racing toward finding things. 
And the only way really that, that any of them knows who found it first or who gets credit for that is, is the publication date. Right. On the other side, you have companies maybe who are interested in making sure that they have some sort of a mitigation for whatever weakness or vulnerability the researcher discovered before letting the public know about the weakness or mm-hmm. vulnerability. So, mm-hmm. And that's a good intentioned thing also, because that's like, hey, we would rather not publish for all the world of potential bad hackers or, right. um, or you know, any kind of person who's interested in doing harm or exploiting a vulnerability. If we publish and make open to the world what that is before we have any way to address it or mitigate it, that's dangerous. We're now putting potentially many people or many millions of people, personal, private data, anything at risk. Right. So there's this balance between ensuring that publication is kind of fair in terms of who discovered the problem first and trying to do that in a timely manner. And also industry saying, wait a minute, can we please come up with some kind of a fix for this and make sure that that's been implemented before the world is aware of something that's wrong? Right. How do you balance that? Yeah, it is a tough problem, right? Um, because uh, the timeliness uh, is key for the academics and also for the industry uh, or the companies uh, with the products being compromised. So right now uh, we have been uh, coming up with uh, these uh, vulnerability disclosure policies that really kind of strike the balance between the two. So we can work with the researchers about, hey, you have a report filing to the company and indicating that this product has this problem. And then under a certain time frame, uh, the researchers will not disclose the information to the public. But at the same time, they are still able to file that particular publications to the conferences. And we work with the conferences also hand in hand to ensure we address the issues well ahead of time before the publication shows up to the public. So that kind of handshake allow the best of both worlds protecting the customers who are at risk and also ensuring the timeliness uh, of the researchers getting the first right of publication. And that is something that we continue to kind of uh, work towards. Uh, One thing which is uh, important to highlight about is that when we talk about hardware, compared with software, software, it is easy potentially to release a patch, right? And hardware, if the problem is actually deeply buried into the underlying layer, we have maybe a few options. One, if we can solve it over a software layer, yeah, we can have a workaround. If we can address it underlying, maybe in the firmware, we can still release a firmware patch that could be done uh, over the air or maybe through some mechanisms uh, supported by our equipment providers. But then if we ends up having to be addressing in the hardware itself, which is the rare case, uh, then yeah, that timeliness becomes much harder to work with sometimes right, with the academic researchers. And that is the patient's part of that. They, they have to kind of work with us, uh, allow us to be able to protect the interests of the end customers. And, and does industry as a whole agree on the amount of time that's kind of allowed? Or, or you know, how, how much time do you get? You know, and then is it different for software and hardware? And does all of industry agree, let alone researchers? Yeah, uh, another great question. Uh, I don't believe there is a common timeline that everybody would say, great. As you can imagine, 
uh, one side will say the faster the better, the other side will say uh, give us more time so that we can do something more thorough and coordinate better. And it is not just about the company itself needs to do that work, right? But the ecosystem, the partners, maybe in the OS, in the software community, the IT department who consume those products uh, to be able to well test it in the environment. So it's like a multi-layer of uh, complexity. But to answer the question, I believe the minimum 90 days uh, would be required to help triage the issue, we produce the issue, identify mitigations, making sure the mitigations are effective uh, in different skills of the product, different usage models of the product, release it to the partners and the ecosystem, allow them to do the same thing. So minimum 90 days is uh, the commonly accepted uh, practices. Does industry work with academia in terms of establishing or setting research trajectories like what is industry worried about in technology mm -hmm. or is academia just picking based on their own interest yeah so this is actually part of my job is to help share what is important to the industry uh, with our academic partners so kind of going back to about seven or eight years ago when i first started on this academic engagement i was coming out from uh, working on intel products and try to secure them and then the problem is okay when i look at hardware security tools and methodologies i don't find that many outside available in open source or in commercial solutions so i look deeper to see what's the problem and then when I talk to our academic partners, right, as I mentioned earlier, I really respect them. They're very intelligent and they are usually the forerunner of the technology. And when I ask them in hardware security context, what are you researching on? So a lot of them actually have been spending time solving problems where their money, right, their funding is coming from and direct them to look into. And as you can imagine, our U.S. government actually have a lot of interest to uh, secure the supply chain, making sure that chips are not embedded with Trojan. There are also uh, cryptography-related improvement are being driving. So when you talk to our academic partners, many of them are working in these space, right, which is important, uh, but then not the complete picture. So that also started how I um, involved in this journey about, yeah, there are many other hardware security problems that we also need uh, our academics to work on. And that journey uh, becomes about you go to certain conferences, share with people about what a company cares about, how the industry cares about, what are the gap area. And then people start have conversation with you. You give them maybe some funding so that they can work on solving those problems. And then when people see, oh, wow, these are really interesting problems. And more and more people kind of join the course, right? And that also is one of the motivation why we actually started this hardware common weakness enumeration. Uh, we want to show the world about what is the common issues that we see in day-to-day -day product development and where we need more help on. And one, one interesting uh, encounter we had before is that uh, we as security researcher here, we also file patterns or publish paper, right? So I remember at one time that we actually published a paper or submit a paper for a really great uh, conference. And we thought, oh yeah, we are solving a big problem and they should like our paper. At the end, when we receive uh, some uh, reviewers feedback, they basically ask, what makes you feel that this issue that you're solving is the top issue? To them, they haven't heard about the issue because we fail as an industry to tell them about what are the biggest problem. And that is also motivating us to share more broadly about 
yeah, these are some of the challenges. So I think to answer your question is that it is like uh, a proactive work that the industry needs to do. And then also coming from the academics, they are absorbing all these information and try to internalize it and figure out how would my research directions going forward look like. What would your dream team of hackers be? If you were going to assemble a team, I mean, how many people would you want and what kinds of different things would you want them to focus on? And if you want to scope that down to hardware, that's okay. Jason's Oceans 11 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I am looking at a, a multidisciplinary team. I really uh, enjoy the benefit of working uh, with folks coming from different backgrounds and perspectives and helping one another to continue to learn and also helping this uh, balance about certain skill sets I can add. So uh, from a research angle, we, for example, take in uh, some very uh, traditional security research area and with talents coming from that point of view about, yeah, I know how to do threat model. I understand the uh, SOC architecture. I can go deep dive and understand and find issues uh, at hand uh, for different classes of product. It can be a server, client, IoT, FPGA, et cetera. And then for each kind of issues, now you need specific skill set to find those problems. You may need a radio expert to be able to find out, hey, uh, this radio is emitting certain signals and then it could be captured by another one. And what if I have a side channel happening? So when you talk about side channel, the radio expert may say, you know what, I can only work on the RF part of it. But then if you talk about how can we apply statistical analysis to break a crypto key material out of the traces that we have collected, then you need another skill set which is specialized in identifying these uh, patterns and being able to perform the analysis. So you need a side channel expert in the team. Now you talk about analyzing data. Is it the right way to do it is just by brute forcing it or maybe we can apply machine learning techniques. So now you may want to introduce a machine learning expert, but all these hacking approaches may not also give us the comprehensiveness of the product coverage. So you also want to provide the sense about by the time when we finish this analysis, our product has certain level of confidence. So how can we achieve that? Fussing, formal verification, all these are very specialized skill sets. So in my dream team, we need to have experts covering any of these aspects and then they can work together. And one thing I really care about is not just about the skill set of the uh, individual, but also the mentality, the mentality about being passionate, being curious, uh, and also ready to learn more new stuff and collaborate well with one another. I think these are all will make a dream team comes true. That's interesting because sometimes I think in academia and actually also in industry, we end up in silos, you know, and you get more and more specific about what you're good at. Mm -hmm. And then you miss, you have big gaps. Whereas if you end up working together, you know, it might just take a lunch together to figure out, oh my gosh, you know, I hadn't thought of that angle. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And that inspiration, that discussion, that brainstorming, having this routine practices is really uh, hard to come by, right? Especially right now when we are in COVID, right? So one thing that we also do is we try to um, create these opportunities in a more intentional manner. So one trick that we have been using also is um, we form a work group or study group uh, where we focus on a particular discipline. Let's say, how can we apply static analysis techniques to address hardware issues? 
And then we bring in like-minded people. And weekly, we try to uh, rotate topics and have individuals to share about what they have learned. And by sharing information, we also get to critique one another's uh, viewpoints, learn about what are the gap area and come up with some new inspiration for us to really spend time looking at. So I think that intentional discussion uh, would also help to uncover more blind spots that people may have missed. Let me ask you one thing. I think you started a capture the flag in hardware. Can you explain what that is? Right. So in the journey, when we try to actually bring more awareness about what the industry problem is about to the academics. So the first step we chose is to speak at conferences, create a tutorial. So they are great opportunity to help kind of share the work. But then when you look about, uh, look at, yeah, there are people attending the conferences, they get to understand some high level pictures, but then they don't get to see the hands-on parts of it. There is still a distance about carrying a conversation versus carrying a research on that discipline. So at that time, we thought about, hey, how can we make this uh, journey, the awareness building journey to be even more fun and more hands-on? So we partnered with uh, our uh, researcher partners in academics uh, from Germany and from also US, and we pulled together this uh, hardware capture the flag competition. Uh, We showcase all the common weaknesses we are aware of in an open source SOC, the open source SOC basically contains like the regular RTL code that people um, like designers or verification teams will review and, and uh, polish. But we embedded these uh, vulnerabilities into that big pool of uh, RTL code. And then we open it up for uh, the competitors to uh, find them. And we give them 48 hours straight, nonstop actions in a conference setting and invite teams of uh, maybe three or four joining together and find as many issues as possible. One thing that they walk away with is that first, oh, this is what you mean by having these issues because they get to see them. They got to play around with them. Second is that they also understand the challenges being encountered by our verification team because with a very short period of time that you have to verify your LTL before it got released as a product, we create that a 48-hour window that there are so many bugs inside the LTL that you need to find. The more, the better. They understand now I really need tooling. I really need a fantastic methodology to help me understand the LTL, find all the issues, and be able to report back. So that also brings that awareness to the attendees so that hopefully right, they will be inspired to work on the research discipline related to hardware security in a more intentional manner relevant to the hardware industry's problems. Jason, this is really, really interesting conversation. I'm so glad that you're working on this and focused on it. And I think it's really interesting that such deep partnerships occur actually between industry and academia and what we, you know, kind of traditionally think of as hackers, but putting a different spin on it, thinking of the good side of that and how it's helping evolve technology. Thank you so much for joining me today and defining what is hacking and what is offensive security research. Thank you, Camille. And I also just want to point out, um, you did allude to uh, the different kind of mindset of, we'll say, hacker or offensive security research. We have another episode with Isaura Gaeta where we talk about diversity and inclusion in cybersecurity. And one of the key topics she addresses in that is just what you 
mentioned, which is a, a different mindset is part of diversity and inclusion. So if anybody's interested in hearing that, um, they can check out that episode as well. Thanks again, Jason. Thank you, Camille. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.